Hi, it's Jason Bryden, and welcome to the Bold Acting Podcast for Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. This is part two of the What I Learned from Reading the Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act by Isaac Butler. But first, I just wanted to give, uh, to remember my friend uh, Guy, Guy McPherson, who passed away a couple weeks ago from cancer in Vancouver. Uh, Classic way to go. He was, uh, I don't know how old he was, but um, he was a stalwart of the Vancouver comedy scene. And he's left quite a legacy in his uh, website, which is Guy McPherson, that's uh, M-A-C-P-H-E-R-S-O-N dot C-A, Guy McPherson dot C-A, because he's got so many interviews and articles there with and of... uh, comedy greats, and Vancouver locals, who are also great, alike. And interviews with Neil Brennan, Steve Martin and Martin Short, David Cross, Kathy Griffin, Bill Burr, Louis C.K., Tom Segura, Mark Maron, Jimmy Pardo, Andy Richter, the list goes on and on, Sarah Silverman, David Tell. So there's, there's that. He, um... He loved comedians, and he loved comedy. And I was lucky enough to call that cunt a friend and to reconnect with him. I I totally admit that when I heard he had cancer, that's when I reached out. And I'm bad like that for sure. But there's nothing like a terminal terminal illness to to remind you that uh, you should spend some time with and then the the downhill slide went quickly for him so uh i was also able to leave some abusive voice messages um i texted him that and his his wife uh thankfully played those for him on his deathbed um so it kind of felt like even though he couldn't talk he at least heard me and we were able to uh connect one more time before he goes to the big comedy club in the sky. What a horrible thought. If you believe in an afterlife, can you think of anything worse? You die, and then you just spend eternity dying. <laughs> uh, anyways, you can find his podcast, What's So Funny, wherever the podcasts are uh, for you. Over 500 episodes. It's called What's So Funny. And... um He's interviewed all the giants. I'm just, I was just listening to the Bob Saget one from uh, 2017, I believe, that he reposted when he died in 2022. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of in memoriam episodes up there right now. The Rewinds, Daryl Lennox, and um, he died in 2023. And, uh, Norm, of course, the repeat from 2012. Norm MacDonald, so good. And uh, Eddie Izzard. No, no, he's still alive. Anyways, check that out. What's so funny? Great comedy podcast. Tons of them to listen to. Brought to you by Vancouver Co-op Radio. And the late, great, the notorious G. McP. R.I.P. guy. All right, let's get on with things. Part two of this motherfucker of a book, hey? Aren't you glad you don't have to read it? God. 
But the method, uh, even though we're post-method, or at least this uh, Isaac Butler, the author, posits that, we don't have another system for acting. There, We haven't gotten something better. We haven't moved on from anything. Unless you can call a non-system or an anti-system or a methodical a system. Because that's where we're at. That's what I've learned from this book. And in fact, and there may be some confirmation bias here, that's exactly what, what works for me. If you buy into a system, you've, I think it behooves us to, to, to remember that we change so much that that system may stop speaking to us in the same way uh, as we evolve. Don't take my word for it because I can't change you, but people change all the time. I tell my students that all the time. Go get a second opinion or a third. Besides, every teacher has is standing on the shoulders of teachers that have gone before or responding or reacting to. So let's get into it. An apocryphal story rings true. Michael Chekhov, son of Anton, of all people, in an exercise under Stanislavski's tutelage, was asked by the great master teacher to recreate an emotional state using effective memory, one of the tenets of the method. The class was aghast as they watched Chekhov relive his father's recent death. The only thing was that Anton Chekhov was not yet dead. Mikey Checks used his imagination. And you can too. Now, what broke Mia open was children. Me personally. I wept all the time. I still do. But still couldn't summon emotions at will. The secret for me was revealed with connection. It was purely technical. You summon a real connection with your scene partner. You allow yourself to be affected. Imagination, openness. You don't map out a thing. Fight the urge to put a stripe of mustard on there too. You don't have to show anybody. All right, you don't have to. You don't have to to juice it up. All you have to do is become tuned into the staggering amounts of suffering in any fellow human, and you will be moved. Just practice that. Then your next goal is to move your audience just as much. That's the real test: serving your audience. This doesn't mean you're giving them what they ask for means you're giving them the thing that they don't know they want yet. Chekhov came up with the psychological gesture. One example of this is Clint Eastwood's narrowing of his eyes to show dominance in the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's that move you make that is used as a touchstone for you to get in. Think Jean-Paul Belmondo in Breathless, rubbing his pursed lips with his thumb, which is always such a weird move, and yet so French. And as a young person, when I watched that film, I thought, who does that? Well, nobody does it. But we're not making a documentary here. It's a film. It's a French film. It's New Wave. He's going to rub his thumb against his big, fat smoker's lips, and you're going to like it. Because we're moving towards something that isn't reality. Not just reality, it's something closer to the truth. Or for something completely different, what about Benny Hill rubbing his hands together and arching his eyebrows whenever he was within a thousand yards of a woman a third his age? Maybe not the method in practice, but it is in theory. 
because we all think that when we see somebody attractive, we raise our eyebrows inside because we don't want to get caught. We don't want to be a dirtbag about it. It was during the Polish-Russo War of 1918 that two students of Stanis, one of them a Pole, decided to make a run for it and leave Russia for good. They walked for days, shaking their military escort, bribing villagers along the way to hide them. Finally, they got to the border. On one side were Russian soldiers, and on the other, the Polish army. They ran towards Poland, yelling at the soldiers to stop, stop shooting. They were Polish, they were friendly. And this is how the method first came to the rest of the world. These are the stakes that we must imbue our art with. Those are the stakes of art. If anyone ever says art isn't important, let's make cuts to the arts, go right ahead. But the stakes remain. Art will always remain. It doesn't matter whether you're funding it. It doesn't matter whether you like it. Art happens, and the stakes are fucking high. It's life or death out here. We make stuff to survive, to connect with other people, to um, lessen the brutal bluntness of life. That's big, people. A young American named Harold Klerman was in Paris when he saw the Moscow Art Theater's 1922 World Tour. That same tour, the MAT arrived in New York from Montreal, where the Gazette dispelled rumors they were communist spies. The only doctrine the MAT was spreading was good acting, the paper said. Susan Glassbell, one of my favorite writers, Eugene O'Neill and others opened a small theater in Greenwich Village called the Theater Room. Right around this time, their audiences were vets returning from a world war and survivors of the Spanish flu epidemic where uh, they think 100 million people died. And then there was 50 million in the, am I getting this wrong? 50 million in World War I. I just want to, for all the people that are screaming that the, the, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. The sky is always falling. This is nothing new. These these people returning to America, returning to New York City, were hungry for something more than the usual Victorian theatrical traditions. Serious dramas, dramas were in high demand. Glassbell would win the Pulitzer Prize for her one-act play called Trifles. This early example of feminist theater really holds up. I highly recommend you read it. You can get it from the Toronto Public Library. It could be such a good procedural cop show a modern show these days on television or whatever you want to call it. And it's a real short read. I think you'd like it. The, there's a death, and a husband is dead, murdered. And his wife is, his widow is the prime suspect. So the men of the village, the authorities, go over to solve the case. And the women of the village go over at the same time to go bring her some clothes because the wife suspect is in jail, being held in prison. And lo and behold, the men are uh, operating according to protocol and procedure, and they're missing the whole thing, whereas the women notice the small things, the details, the clues, the trifles, and they solve the case. It's a really good play, and it's um, almost 100 years old, and... It feels like something that was written yesterday. The MAT's first show in New York got a 30-minute standing O on opening night. 
even though the entire play was in Russian. This was not the first time that America had had a glimpse of naturalistic acting. Charles Gellinger at the American Academy of the Dramatic Arts was teaching realistic acting styles and script analysis as early as 1898. But the MAT was the first time an ensemble theater model made financial success. These great ideas seemed to be everywhere all at the same time. And this is backed up by the uh, Rick Rubin, who wrote in The Creative Act, his book of, I think, 2022, uh, that we're going to, that I'm going to read to you on the next episode, or two episodes from now, because we've got an interview coming up with my friend Nicole. And I'm not saying her last name because I don't think I can pronounce it properly. It's a long one. He, Rick Rubin says in his book that ideas come down from the ether, and it's up to the most sensitive of our artists to reach up and grab them. Do you believe in that stuff? Do you think stuff is up there in the universe? Do you believe the universe speaks to us? I know that everybody says that. Oh, the universe wants this for me. The universe is telling me this. The universe, the universe. Martha, Martha, Martha. I, I don't know. I, that one doesn't serve me. It's just a bit too woo-woo for me, and I like to have a little more agency. I was talking about this, about free will, with my friend Mo last night, and there's a fine line of where you where the free will argument, you have to cross a line, and then it, beca- it, it goes from reality to philosophy. It goes from, well, if there's... If if there if the universe is expanding it, then it's endless. And where the under either the English language or human understanding, it just can't just makes the thing inarguable. You know what I mean? And faith takes over. Actors and repertory companies who had to, too many lines to memorize would stuff their sides in the wings so they could refer back to them. This is where we get the saying "winging it," and I thought it had something to do with flying. Isaac Butler mentions this because of Summerstock. And it it was the repertory theatrical companies that had so much to, so many lines to memorize because they were doing multiple shows in rap at the same time that they would leave their sides in the wings so they could check their lines uh, when they were off stage. Further precedent that we don't have to worry about lines so much. We don't have to lose our minds over memorizing them. They're not that important. Unless, of course, you're doing Shakespeare, I guess. Uh, but even then, the actors back then didn't. They didn't know all of the f- lines, did they? They only got their sides. They only got their line. Bill the Bard was worried about um, copyright infringement, so he never gave an actor an actor the whole script. You only got your lines, which is the way we should be memorizing lines as it is now. You don't want to know too much. You don't want to have all the information because then you'll map it out. You don't want to know what the other person is supposed to be saying because that's not truthful at all. We want to be on that razor's edge more about it. And even Shakespearean actors in Elizabethan England were more like that, were more irreverent. 
than present-day actors within the Shakespeare theatrical tradition and all their reverence for the words. I mean, you've got to ask yourself, why are, why are we still so enamored with Shakespeare? Yes, he wrote a lot of great stuff, but would you be doing it if you had to pay for it? Would half of us be doing it? It is 400 years old. And what happened to all the talk about destroying the patriarchy? What are you afraid of? You afraid of having to pay a playwright for their work? Hey, huh? Where was I? Lee Strasberg emigrated from Poland in 1909. In New York, he was fascinated by the Yiddish theater circuit. He was so bowled over by the MAT, he saw every performance the company gave in New York City. He had to learn how they did it. A man named Richard Boleslavsky, he was the Polish fellow that crossed the border escaping from Russia with his wife and brought the method to, the, to, to Europe. He came to Broadway in 1922. With Stanislavski's blessing, he began lecturing about the method forthwith. American style. Very nice. Uh, he wrote down his tenets of the method. Number one, the ultimate goal is of real manifestations of imaginary life. Number two, actor, an actor lives his parts, feeling real emotion. Eh, maybe. Three, an actor's inner life can be trained. Before we called this talent God-given, now we can study and practice to become talented. Yes, that sounds really good to me. If someone's just talented, then they could also be lazy. You might be, you might be discounting all the work they've put into this. And if we go around comparing ourselves to others and go, oh, well, they're just ta- they just have God-given talent, then we become helpless and we lose agency. So, Boleslavsky and a bunch of others started the American Lab Theater. And that's where they began to teach what would be called the method. In 1930, Harold Clerman and his BFF, Lee Strasberg, wanted to start their own theater. They enlisted a woman named Cheryl Crawford, lesbian. When she first met Clerman and Strasberg, she was paying her bills by gambling, making bathtub gin, and taking on a sugar daddy. Crawford was a force of nature. Man, I feel a biopic coming on. Whereas Clerman was an owl of a man. Unless he was speaking about American theater and the system. And then he really started hitting his stride. The theater wasn't just commercialized middle-brow presentation, nor was it vaudeville. It was art to Clerman. You had to be one with the audience. It was the lifeblood of society. The group theater was born in the summer of 1931. As the world fell deeper into the Great Depression, what would be the roots of the American method was born in a 10-week summer retreat in Connecticut. Attendees paid 90 bucks to be there, and that included people like Strasburg, Stella Adler, Bobby Lewis, and playwright Clifford Odets, among others. I saw Clifford Odets, I saw Stockard Channing starring Clifford Odets, Awaken Sing at my favorite theater in London called the Almeida in Islington, and it was incredible. That was so long ago. 2009, I think. Holy shit. I was a different person, but I remember that play. The group theater's first production was a small hit. The House of Connolly got a rave review from the New York Times. The group went on to 
do more, but their second play was a flop, but they kept going. The next year, they acquired a new member, a Yale grad named Ilya Kazan, who would later go on to direct On the Waterfront, A Streetcar Named Desire, and Splendor in the Grass, among others. Then he went on to name friends of his in Hollywood that were communist sympathizers during the Red Scare in the 1950s. Led by that worm and morphine addict, Joseph McCarthy, junior senator from Wisconsin. He was also, he is also the grandfather of Zoe Kazan, who's a great actor, and the wife of Paul Dano. I mentioned the morphine because I had that once, and it was the best thing I've ever put in my body. Uh, shout out to Dr. Mark, who didn't give me more. When I asked him, when I texted him late at night on a Friday, uh, even though I live in Toronto and he lives in Vancouver, and I begged him for more of it, and he said, no, um, you're fine. New York during the Great Depression was a shell of its former self. There was unemployment, there were bread lines, and there were desperate people turning to crime every day. Cheryl Crawford moved in with a friend so she could sublet her apartment to composer Aaron Copeland. I love how everyone's hanging out together. Life was hard. Half of the group theater lived communally. Ugh, gross. Would you? I could never live communally. Just, I dated a woman once who lived communally. I remember that. I folded their laundry. That was weird of me. Ugh, memories. The group's next show focused on the life and loves of a doctor and took place in a hospital. Now that's method. So they learned about doctors. They enlisted medical professionals to come and chat to the group about the habits of doctors, nurses, and what it's like to work in a hospital. In rehearsal, they spent most of their time improvising the lines of their characters. This was the beginning of the American way of creating a character through the examination of biographical means. Even if you've never heard of some of these people, can you imagine forging something new in a time of not just economic upheaval, but like serious upheaval, like dust bowls? That's real poor, 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 poor. Political collapse, burgeoning war, market crashes, the likes of which we haven't seen again. The best art happens in times of adversity. Richard Boleslavsky wrote an acting book called Acting. The First Six Lessons. This is the first English-language book uh, on Stanislavski's system. Then a year later, in 1934, he died of a heart attack before he could write another book. Oh, God, another reminder to do it now, because you're going to die. You could be put in jail for your political beliefs, or get shot by an American patriot with an automatic rifle, or just have a heart attack at age 47. Meanwhile, back in the USSR, Stanislavski was finding it real hard to navigate Stalin's Russia. The MAT was directly answerable to the government. Though he was never overtly political, Stanislavski was paranoid of the Soviet state, and he would take regular trips to Paris to teach, to write, to make money, to see shows. And it's there he met Stella Adler. Their work together, according to Butler, was more like two artists meeting and less like mentor and mentee. Stanislavski was proposing one that one cannot feel and then do the problem. You have to go into the water in order to learn to swim. Stanny wasn't into emotional memory exercises. You get to emotion via imagination. This makes sense, right? Act the thing for the physical action and then figure out the feelings later. 
Move from action to action within the given circumstances. The feelings will come. Adler became a method teacher there in Paris after a month with Stanislavski. See what I mean? Anyone can call themselves an acting teacher. Butler then mentions a version of an aphorism by Pushkin, the famous uh, Russian director. The truth of passions, the verisimilitude of feeling, placed in the given circumstances. That's the method. Action, an object, adjustment, and connection became Stella Adler's four pillars. Action, doing something, to an object, and then adjustment, conflict, and then connection with your scene partner. Do something to something. Then have that and then be affected by that or affect your scene partner through that something. And then the adjustment is the reaction of your scene partner, the provocation, the world impacting the status quo. And you're there listening in the moment. That's the thing. That's the connection. Butler writes, and we saw this in Stella Adler's book, there was a real fascination in making everything seem real um, that wasn't real, that was artifice on stage. Uh, She cites an actor drinking out of what is obviously an empty coffee cup. Maybe this is simplistic, and maybe this is part of why we are post-method, but why is that coffee cup empty? Go for the verisimilitude and the sonography of the production, and then you won't have to spend your life learning to mime or to fake it. Faking it is easy. It's pretend time, like when you were a kid. You don't have to get into your head about it. You don't have to learn mime either. Anymore. The thing that is hard and that must be admitted is walking and talking on stage or in front of a camera. You get better at this through repetition or from knowing your lines. Trying to remember action, object, sense, memory, adjustment, connection, a magic if, the empty coffee cup, the moment before, your character's backstory, blah, blah, blah. That's all too much for me. That gets me right in my head. Just put water in the fucking coffee cup and then I'll go and walk and I'll talk at the same time. And now I'll hit that sandbag, I'll hit that mark. When I first started out, I could never do that. I just get overwhelmed, you know, by all the rules. Like I'm at a party where I don't know anyone. I just leave. Or when the to-do list is too long, I just go to bed. Anyway, if you're anything like me, staying out of bed is, is a matter of making things doable. That means learning your lines, but not panicking about them. Connecting with your scene partner, whether they're a tennis ball or a human being, and taking nothing for granted. That's a big one. Just take nothing for granted. Notice everything. If I can remember it's not about not thinking, then I'm going to be okay. So far, the 1930s method, the method or the system or whatever you want to call it, has too many details. It resembles a map. I don't want a map. I want a blank canvas. By the 1950s, the method actually had been born. Original members of the group theater either defected to Hollywood, Clifford Odets, Ilya Kazan, or continued to teach slash fight with each other uh, over what the method was, Paul Newman, Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler. But actors that would go on to use whatever the method was to them were a who's who of Hollywood legend. Kim Stanley, Marlon Brando, Joe Van Fleet, Montgomery Clift were the kind of actors that put their ideas and their imagination over all else. And this is where I think actors as storytellers comes from. And I would gently suggest that we frame it as actors as collaborators. We don't have to beleaguer ourselves with a bunch of information. Don't take my word for it. 
Try everything. See what works for you. In my estimation, however, I tend to like a lean apparatus. And I like those actors that do that. I am a tiny, beautiful, unique cog, but a cog nonetheless. In a fucked up, coked up, overbearing, narcissistic, sexist, ageist, prejudiced business that I happen to love. The actors that do this, that are simple, that act simply but evocatively, the Willem Dafoe's of the world, the Glenn Close's, the Francis McDormand's, the Philip Seymour Hoffman's, the ones that just do the thing and leave the, re- the responsible actors. Not with all the fuss. That's what I love. What if you're acting in something and your character says something you don't think is correct? My character wouldn't do that slash say that. You know that thing? That came out of the school that brought us motivation. A drive for perfection can mislead us to wearing too many hats. So now we want to be in charge of the script, the blocking, props, set deck, and other actors. Acting, I would argue, is enough. If we just take care of connecting with another human, we can also work on embodying what it means to be a responsible actor. Someone who shows up on time with their lines memorized and generously serves their fellow collaborators. Serve all. Above all, watch what happens to your performance when you are no longer worried about how you look or about achieving your goals. As if you are in a one-person show, what's my motivation? My character wouldn't do that. Well, maybe they would. Try, 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 maybe they would. So how does a method actor do all their stuff on a set or a stage? Well, one student of Lee Strasberg, Rod Steiger, distilled it down in a way that makes a lot of sense in a film called The Pawnbroker, directed by Sidley Lumet. Find the emotion, let it out, see how the character would repress it, and then see what happens. How does that sound to you? Find the emotion, let the emotion out. See how the character would repress it and see what happens. The repression, the internalization, is the thing. That's what's really interesting to watch, to see an actor try not to cry. To see them push their anger down without giving into it. To watch a secret love bubble up to the surface without an exuberance that would give us away. That would lose us face. This is what we do all the time. We cover. We hedge. And we hope not to make a fool of ourselves in front of others. The pawnbroker couldn't find a distributor in America. And therefore couldn't be an awards contender because there was a topless woman in the movie of all things. (gasps) The nudity went against the production code at the time. The filmmaker appealed and the film office reversed their decision. Finally, the Motion Picture Association allowed the film to be distributed in spite of the complaints from the Catholic Church. As usual. And Rod Steiger went on to receive his second Oscar nomination. Art comes from adversity and art, if it's done well, leads to adversity leads to controversy. Why did you become an actor? Was it to work in a Hallmark movie? Was it to get a Tim Hortons commercial? Or was it to push the envelope? Don't you want to be a part of something bigger? Dustin Hoffman was a student of Lee Strasberg's, but he couldn't get work because he was so abrasive and odd. 
His classmates voted him most likely not to succeed. Then his pal Alan Arkin cast him in an off-Broadway play, and Mike Nichols saw it and cast him in The Graduate. Hoffman says of his Hollywood screen test that it was the most humiliating thing he had ever done. He felt out of place. Short, funny-looking Jewish kids weren't typically leads in Hollywood movies. Who got to be the love interest of the likes of Catherine Ross? Hubba hubba. In the makeup chair, they plucked away at his monobrow and tried to tone down his big nose. Hoffman would go on to play Benjamin Braddock, in spite of the character being a handsome, tall, waspy jock in the book. Because director Mike Nichols wanted to show the audiences of the late 60s America a character mirroring themselves. During these times filled with total uncertainty, a murdered president, a blood-soaked civil rights movement, a war in Vietnam, the sky was indeed falling yet again. And what triumphed? Art did. Ignore the naysayers and the audition breakdowns. Don't try to be the thing that is popular. The field is crowded. Go to the outside. Bring the thing that only you can bring to the role, whether it's for a commercial for tires or an audition for a big juicy part. Go to the outside. That's where the interesting stuff is. And look for the adversity. If times are tough, you know you're in the right spot. That's where the artists thrive. As long as they have their community. You can't do it alone. The end of the method came in the 1980s. Overmatched by blockbusters, international independent film styles, and 1980s progressive policies, Isaac Butler um, suggests, that sought to further make education more accessible and egalitarian. The method as we knew it, met the very same fate it had served up to old styles of acting 75 years earlier. It had become the status quo, and the status quo only serves for so long. Stella Adler and Sanford Meisner said as much. There was no one to take over for them. We have no names that loom as large. Their books on the method have not been surpassed. Harold Klerman died in 1980. Lee Strasberg died in 1982. Adler in 1992. So what have we done since? What school do we follow now? A student of both Strasberg and Adler, Ellen Burstyn, sums up the only path forward is all the paths. She says Stella focused on imagination and Lee focused on reality. You use Stella Adler's imagination to get to Lee Strasberg's reality. Use all the techniques. Don't sign up for one over another. Find out what serves you. But don't forget to check in a year from now and see if anything has changed. A teacher can't change you, but humans change all the time. So go back to class. Always remain a student. Remain curious. Stay hungry. If you're in class, you'll stay younger more self-aware, you'll be surrounded by other lifelong learners. You'll keep flexible in your approach to life and art. You'll remain in touch with the youth. Just remember to diversify your education. Avoid dogma, cults, and the cult of personality. Always get a second opinion. And a third. There are method schools you can study at in New York and L.A. today. Great actors and directors, including Paul Newman, Al Pacino, Ellen Burstyn, Elia Kazan, led the schools and taught there. 
working actors as teachers. I'm not sure you can do better than that, no matter what the system you ascribe to. If I sound a little down on the method, it's because I'm allergic to ideology. Always be suspicious of rigidity and righteousness. Always look to the opposite. What happens if you go in the other direction? When others zig, you zag. It doesn't matter. Trying stuff can't hurt you. Embarrassment only happens if you let it. And if you don't have a goat, they can't get it. The method is a big idea. And as I've established, I'm not a big fan of actors having ideas. Have one idea. Don't have ideas all the way through. You want your performance alive, not mapped out. You want to be present, not in your head. And above all, you want to serve your audience. It's not the emotions you're having. It's the emotions your audience is having. They're the ones paying to come and see you affect them. Whatever finds you, whatever works, don't trust the process. The process quickly becomes routine. Float above it all. Touch down once in a while. It's supposed to be fun. Take a sip. Give yourself to something or someone. Commit to it. Wear it all on your sleeve. Suit the action to the word and the word to the action. Hold a mirror up to nature. Speak the speech. I pray you. And then just stop. Stop acting. Listen to your scene partner. Do not saw the air. Do not mouth the words. Spend the rest of your life making art with people you love. Put thine eyebrows down. Nothing much has changed. We are still in search of an audience and knowledge. Still looking for our tribe. We still want your attention. We live for the applause, whether it's live or just likes. The reason you got into this must come from you. Hang your happiness on other human beings and nine times out of ten, you'll be disappointed. A great performance remains one that asks questions, even in its clarity and simplicity. Great acting remains truthful behavior under imagined circumstances. And for that, we have Konstantin Stanislavski to thank for. The rest is up to you. And that was The Method, written by Isaac Butler. Thanks for listening to the Bold Acting Podcast. There's three streams for you to enjoy. This is the What I Learned From, where I read a book on acting and then take copious notes and podcast it. There's also the newsletter. You can sign up for the written version of that at boldacting.substack.com. And the third stream is the Bold Acting Interview. The next guest is going to be Nicola Correa de Moody. I'm sure I'm saying that right. <laughs> I wish I hadn't. Anyways, for more information on classes, go to boldacting.com slash classes. Reach out to me personally at jasonbryden at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram. I'm Jason Bryden of Canada. And you are wonderful. See you next time. <laughs>